On today's episode of My Climate Journey, our guest is Kunal Sinha, Global Head of Recycling at Glencore. Glencore is number 21 on the Fortune Global 500 in 2023. And as the world's largest commodities trader, and as one of the world's largest natural resource companies, they have a very substantial role in the energy transition and in climate change. First of all, over one-third of Glencore's 2022 revenue comes from coal. So from a climate perspective, the company has a substantial impact today. They also have a significant oil and gas business. In my conversation with Kunal, we touch a bit on that, but we focus mostly on Glencore's mining and metals activities. And this piece is part of what makes Glencore unique from most energy companies when it comes to the energy transition. Yes, it's in the business of fossil fuels, but it's also deeply in the business of extracting and processing a majority of key metals that will help us transition to an electrified future. In his role as global head of recycling, Kunal not only works to understand how Glencore's primary mining business works, but also is driving their initiatives around circularity and reuse. Mining has a reputation as a dirty business, and Glencore has had its share of environmental issues and controversies in the past. I appreciate Kunal for not shying away from these challenges and also helping us understand the important role that mining and Glencore have to play in the future and the importance of natural resource circularity as part of it. But before we start, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Kunal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cody. Glad to be here. Well, my goodness, I think, you know, a few months ago, I was, you know, going through my LinkedIn or whatever, and I saw a connection request and I looked at it and I was like, wait a minute, this guy's the global head of recycling at Glencore, which is like one of the largest natural resources companies in the world. Thanks for the ad. (laughs) I'm excited to meet you. Um, And so, you know, with that, I think I immediately said, hey, I want to learn more about what you do because you're in the thick of a lot of stuff. And so with that, thanks for reaching out and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with a little bit about your background, Kunal? So you are currently the global head of recycling at Glencore. You've been in that role for a few years now, but you've been at the company for over a decade. So maybe start by explaining a little bit about your journey. You could start earlier than Glencore if you want, but how you ultimately got to the role you're in today. Yeah, I think like a lot of us have had a few uh, twists and turns and I have to pivot a few times. I'm actually a, a mechanical engineer by training. I was fascinated by robotics when I was in undergrad which was in India. And then I actually came to the U.S. to pursue a PhD in in robotics. So I was at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. So I didn't finish the PhD, but I did finish my master's on robotics and then got interested in consulting. So I spent about six years in management consulting, fairly globally. You travel a lot in consulting, which I did. And that was in a very different space back then. So mostly biotech, medtech, healthcare, big pharma, small pharma, so pretty much if you want help with treating your diabetes, I still remember what you can do. So <laughs> so I spent a lot of time there, so about six years. And then I guess I wanted to do something more and something with 
perhaps a little bit more direct PL responsibility than, than consulting provides. So I took a break, did my MBA from London Business School. I was initially looking at things like private equity. But then, yeah, Glencore sort of came around. They had just IPO'd, so it was a very new name. I think uh, pre-IPO, if you were not really in commodities, you wouldn't know who Glencore is. Uh, so there was a you know, bit more awareness of the company. By the way, I learned in a little bit of research I was doing before our conversation that Glencore is actually an acronym for Global Energy Commodity Resources, G-L-E-N-C-O-R-E, which I thought was interesting. My understanding is there's no official statement to that effect, but that oh, seems to be okay. <laughs> but it's I'm a starting rumors acronym. here on the pod. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but yes, there is some history there. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think, look, I had no idea about commodities. I did an internship and I was just fascinated back then that there is this whole backbone of trade flows that pretty much powers everything you do in the world from energy to metals to pretty much everything you use in daily life has materials. And usually I think the general awareness for where stuff is made these days has really declined to the extent that if you ask a you know any average pretty smart person like hey where do you think this water bottle you know all the, all the elements in this water bottle came from you wouldn't know right and so it was quite fascinating that whole sector was very opening up companies were going public Glencore had gone public so I got really interested in that commodity flow and that sector so I did have the opportunity to, after my internship to join them full time so I started in 2011 was my internship I started in 2012. I started in the copper concentrates team. That's a good success story for your MBA program. You know, the, the conversion of internship to, you know, now running a huge business inside this company 10 yeah, years actually, later. So there were a few people at the time. We actually started a commodities club at the London Business School, which, you know, now is kind of thriving and doing well, which is great. But yeah, so, you know, I got into the business. Copper was always a good parameter for the economy fascinating business again even metal people understand concentrates is even more interesting it's what you get out of get out of mines and this whole business was pretty much about you know you have these commodities they're all over the world and then you need to take them from where they are plentiful to where they are needed that's pretty much commodity trading and it was quite fascinating so i did that for about a year or two and then uh, glencore acquired at the time a company called extrada which was I believe it was the biggest M&A transaction in mining at the time. And that opened up other opportunities. It was a huge transaction. And I, I was asked to go to Canada to look at some of the businesses we had picked up as part of that transaction and, and try and make sense of it and integrate it with our business. So I moved back to Canada. I was in New York pre-MBA, then went to Switzerland. And we had our, actually, our first daughter was born in Switzerland, which is a very interesting experience. <laughs> Glencore is headquartered in Switzerland, yes? We are, yeah. It's a Swiss company. Yeah, yeah. It's headquartered in, a, in this sleepy village called Bar or Zouk. Mm. So yeah, so I came back to Canada, managed this group company, did a bunch of interesting things with them. So after spending three, four years there, I was just looking for the next challenge. And at the time, the leadership basically was looking at how do we, and I'll go into what Glencore does, but we have a very long-standing recycling business. And four or five years ago, even internally, it wasn't that well publicized, if you may. And externally, if you ask people, hey, do you know Glencore does recycling? Nobody would even know about it. So it was a good business. It was sort of scattered in a few different places. And the idea was, can we 
can we make sense of it, put it all together cohesively and so that we can better explain it internally and externally, and then of course grow it. Before we even get into the recycling side, you had also spent quite a chunk of time developing a sulfuric acid business. Is that right? Inside Glencore? Yeah. So that was the business I had picked up, which was another fascinating. So if you think about sulfuric acid, it's the most used chemical in the world. It's about 240, 250 million tons. It's in everything people use on their daily. Like my fun story is if you brush your teeth, which I believe most people do these days, you are using sulfuric acid because the you know, when you brush your teeth, your toothpaste has abrasives and those silica particles, they come from precipitating silica using sulfuric acid. And we supply one of the only two producers in the world. So my, my fun joke is if you're brushing your teeth, there's 50% chance our sulfuric acid helped you, you know, keep, keep it clean. <laughs> and one thing I've learned about companies in the natural resources space is it seems like when it comes to things like sulfuric acid, I don't know the details, but I'm going to guess here. It's most likely both a byproduct of some metal or mineral that you extract, as well as a tool in driving extraction of a different metal or mineral. Is that accurate? It's accurate. And it's a very interesting point you bring up. So if you're not in the space, you may miss the point, which is this industry is extremely efficient. Sulfuric acid is a case in point. So any non-ferrous metal that you produce chances are uh, the, the metal molecule coexists with a sulfur molecule. And so when you go through the process, you essentially have sulfur dioxide emissions, which about you know, 50, 70 years ago, nobody was capturing, which led to acid rain. Of course, that's not good. And smelters across the world now have very high capture. Is this mostly like zinc and lead? Anything, zinc, lead, nickel, copper, they, any non-ferrous metal usually will have, will have uh, the natural geology will include some sulfur. There's other types of ores that don't have, but many do. That's right. I guess we have heard historically of copper being a heavy acid rain sort of causing metal. Yeah, you can look at that. Now, the funny thing is, just to spend a minute on that, if you look at USGS data, actually now the U.S. farmland soil is sulfur deficient. And one of the reasons is kind of a funny reason is that there's no more acid rain which is good. But then your natural sulfur is depleting. So right. now you have a situation where the fertilizer companies are actually yeah, adding sulfur to the fertilizer because you need the sulfur molecule in, in the soil to have good crops. It's a fascinating business. So you produce byproducts of sulfuric acid. So you're actually extracting extra value from the same concentrate from which you make metal. But then that sulfuric acid gets used in crazy number of applications, all the way from mining to fertilizers, cornstarch, food grade cornstarch, you need sulfuric acid for that, pulp and paper, lead acid batteries, advanced chemicals, nuclear power plants, steel. It's basically the most used chemical in the world. So you ran this business and presumably, I'm going to guess, it gave you some incredible insights into sort of resource circularity to some extent. Yeah, and I think it doesn't get its day in the limelight, if you ask me. I think sulfuric acid is an amazing cradle-to-grave story. You're turning a byproduct, which usually, if you didn't capture, causes acid drain. So you're turning it into a very useful, critical reagent. There are industrial plants that will shut down if they don't get sulfuric acid on time. And we ran one of the largest supply networks for sulfuric acid in North America. Then part of my job was we expanded it. We connected it with the global markets. We opened import terminals. We run a fleet of 4,000 rail cars all over North America. 
And so I think it's a great sustainability story. It's basically upcycling the, it's not recycling, but it's upcycling the ASO2 molecule into a very use, actually a very critical chemical without which, for example, half the water treatment plants, municipal water treatment plants in the US need sulfuric acid to run. So it gave me not just a overview of the resource sector, but also all of these various use cases and how integrated this gets into all kinds of industries. It was a fascinating business to manage and grow. And so then you're going to tell us a story, but get introduced to this opportunity to become the global head of recycling, which I presume has a lot of responsibilities around metal separation, metals recycling, of which probably sulfuric acid also plays a role, a significant role in that, right? Like I think of hydrometallurgy as like how EV batteries are presumably getting recycled in many cases. And that is a sulfuric acid application, right? Yeah, life comes full circle. (laughs) Yeah. You know, somebody I met once told me, you always cross paths twice in life. So I crossed path once with sulfuric acid and now crossing again because of recycling. So that's a great thing. Yeah, so the recycling story Basically, yes, I was looking for the next challenge. The company was thinking about reorganizing, restructuring the recycling business a bit, which, you know, Glencore has been recycling or our assets have been recycling, some of them since 1940s. But again, people didn't know about it. So we created this new role. We pulled some of the internal resources together, tried to create a more cohesive business unit that focuses on this. And there were people already, so it's just a matter of pulling things together. And um, I started in that about four years ago. Maybe I can just give, a, at this point, it's helpful to understand what Glencore is and why recycling sits within there and, and why is it important, just to give you some thought. So if you're not aware of Glencore, you know, we are a pretty large, very global natural resources company. The way I like to talk about the company is we supply the energy of today, and that is based on coal or oil. We have pretty substantial presence in supplying that energy of today. But we also are one of the largest in what I call energy of tomorrow, which is going to be these metals that are empowering the energy transition. Glencoe is also, I think, one of the first mining companies in the world to commit to a net zero by 2050. Ambition, a big part of that is we are ramping down, committing to ramping down our coal production as consistent with those goals. So I won't go into that detail, but I look at the energy transition. It's a transition. All transitions have to be very carefully managed, right? So I sit in the company, I look at it, and I see the company is supplying the energy of today. You can't just take your foot off that pedal. So you need to try and achieve a ramp down and a ramp up, and you have to coordinate it. And I feel like Glencoe's doing a good job at that coordination. Well, this is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the pod, because from where I sit, Glencore seems like a very unique company in that, you know, you have oil and gas majors or whatever that are, you know, pretty much in the business of oil and gas. You have companies that maybe do coal, but you guys work in oil and gas, you work in coal, but you also work in all of these metals that are driving the future of an electrified economy from an energy perspective. And you're having to find the balance of in what time frame and how quickly you're able to transition. You've also had, you know, I mean, and you're not shy about it. It's all over your website. Like you've had some complex issues in the past with, yep. you know, environmental issues in various countries you operate in, labor practice issues in various countries you operate in. And frankly, you know, I presume hopefully are learning from that and figuring out the right way to do things going forward, because this is hard stuff, right, that you're doing. Absolutely. And very thank you for putting it that way. It's a very 
difficult balance. But I feel like I often talk about transitions. If you look at any transition in the history of the world or a transition for a company that went through a transition, any transition, by definition, transitions have to be carefully managed. Otherwise, you get it messy. If you don't time demand with supply and things like those, you will have shocks. And I feel like we are, the company is doing a very responsible job of playing its role in the transition. So Glencore itself is transitioning, dealing with the issues we've come out and publicly talked about, accepted some issues in the past. It's a whole different company now. I'm very proud to be here and see the change that the company is. So we have our own transition, but then we're playing this role in the energy transition where, yes, we supply the energy of today and we are investing in the energy of tomorrow. And if I talk about the energy of tomorrow, I mean, just quick credentials. We are the world's largest cobalt producer, the third largest class one nickel producer. Class one nickel is what goes in batteries for EVs. And we are a very large copper producer. We have more than a million tons of bone production. We trade copper. We have another line of sight into another million tons of copper production that we can bring online if you want to. And then we recently started looking at lithium from a marketing trading perspective. So I think, frankly speaking, I, Glencore is a very unique combination of all of these things. I've yet to find a company that has this combination. Where recycling comes into all this is, again, we've been recycling the same metals for a very long period of time, copper since the early 1940s. We were one of the first in the world to invent the process for extracting copper and precious metals from end-of-life electronics, or as people like to call e-waste. I try not to use the word waste because... Our view is everything is a resource, so so we like to call it end-of-life electronics. So we started that in 1986. So since 1986, we have been extracting copper and precious metals from end-of-life electronics. We've now recycled more than a million tons of circuit boards, chips, and wires from all your electronics, which means we probably have helped divert, I don't know, 10 times that number, 10 million or so in device weight from not going into landfill or ending up in a developing country. So we've been doing that when it comes to battery metals, nickel and cobalt. We've been recycling them since the 90s. We've been recycling actual lithium-ion batteries and black mass, which is a very, I guess uh, that's a term everyone knows now, um, since the early 2000s. So if you step back from it, we are one of the largest primary producers and suppliers of these battery metals. We are a very long-standing recyclers of the same metals. So effectively, the way I look at it is Glencore is very uniquely positioned to effectively close the loop. So you produce the molecule, you supply it to where it needs to be to power the energy transition, but then our recycling business helps bring back that molecule and recycle it and put it back into circulation. So that's the business. And if you combine the primary side of our business, the recycling side of the business, effectively, our ambition is to be the lifetime custodians of the molecules we produce and help put them in in a perpetual uh, recycled loop. How do you, inside the company, balance the competing economic challenges of the economics around virgin metal extraction production relative to the unit economics of recycling? And when those two are at odds, how do you deal with it? I get asked this question many times. So I love to answer this question because the answer is very easy. (laughs) It is very logical to say that in a mining company, And a typical mining company is interested in producing as much of the metal as possible and selling it. That if you say, oh, by the way, now I'm going to just recycle the metal, put it back in the market, then it may be at odds with what the mining side of the business wants to do. The reality, at least for us, is it's not the case because they are actually quite 
linked and where you know work very harmoniously together i'll explain why first there's a macro reason the macro reason is where we sit today between now and 2050 the amount of copper nickel cobalt lithium that we expect to need is far more than any rational forecast on how much new production can come from mines so no matter what you do look we definitely need more mining i think even tech companies like google and others have now come out and say we need more mining we need more mining we need more responsible mining we need more metal so however fast you want to go on that journey you still can't close the gap right and i think that's where the on a macro level not a glencore level on a macro level these are actually very synergistic because uh, responsible mining gets you more production i won't say recycling i call it circularity and i think circularity circular economy is actually synonymous to responsible consumption like we need to change behavior patterns we need to change consumption behavior for you and i and my kids and others which is we have to be less wasteful we have to believe in repair repurposing product life extension and recycling and all of those things so that reduces the pressure but the gap is still there right so at a macro level i don't see these two things competing now when it comes to glencore and when the rubber hits the road internally well what happens is what we do is we utilize our primary assets, so smelters and refiners. We take the same asset. Now, the beauty of what Glencore is, we're quite privileged to have this, is our assets can treat very complex materials. And we have metallurgical teams that are extremely creative and innovative. So what ends up happening, take an example of our copper smelter. Sorry to just interrupt you. You all actually own and operate these most of these facilities. You're not a marketing or trading firm sitting on top of these. You're you're actually running the processes. Yeah, there are marketing and trading teams in Glencore where we own all these assets and mines and supply chains. And then we have third party. Right. That's right. You do have the marketing and trading, but you also actually do the processing. Right. And we have these assets. So yeah. if you take the example of our copper smelter, it's the same smelter that is taking the primary mining feeds, but it's the same smelter that also takes all the recycling feeds. And the reason that it works that way is if you look at primary mining, and if you are in the mining world, if not, then it's good 60 seconds for you, which is for most of these metals, we have been mining for decades or centuries. So all the very high grade deposits are depleting. And then the new mines you go into, the, the, the grades are going down and down and down. Also, you have less precious metals in these ores. So what we end up doing is by blending the primary feeds with the recycled feeds, we achieve a few things. The recycling feeds in general have higher grades and have more precious metals. So by providing the same smelter, more of the recycling feeds, they are able to recover more precious metals, more copper, which is good for their business. So they love it. It's not like the guy calls me and says, hey, why are you sending more recycling? I can't produce more copper. No, they love it. And we love it because we are able to do recycling at you know million tons sort of scale. Like I'm using a smelter that runs at almost a million tons. So that order of magnitude compared to a dedicated recycling setup, which can do 50,000 tons or 30,000 tons, my unit cost economics for the recycling part comes down substantially because I'm sharing in that fixed cost, right? So internally, it's not a competition. You as the head of recycling need to figure out how to fund whatever extractor or thing, like take an EV battery that is actually cracking the battery and shredding it and doing whatever you need to do to get to the metals in it. So presumably you as the head of recycling would fund that component of it, but then the outputs of that would just feed into the standard processing facility for lithium or cobalt or, or whatnot. 
I know I'm overly simplistic here and I don't understand the nuance myself. So there's two concepts, right? So one is we are big fans of taking the primary feeds and the recycling feeds and taking it to the same asset because of some of these advantages I just mentioned. And because of that, it's not a competition. It's actually a lot of harmony and efficiency. The reason I like it is, yes, we need to massively scale recycling. We are on record saying we want to grow our recycling business exponentially. The best way to grow something exponentially is to do it very profitably. And the best way to do something very profitably is to have good cost curves. And my, you know, I'm not trying to get very techy or talk in a startup fashion, but I think that means you need scale. This gives us scale, low cost. You can do massive amounts of this. So it's all about big scale and growing this at a crazy, crazy pace. So that's why I like this setup. Now, when it gets into EV and the point you mentioned, broadly, yes, but I think the it gets into the nuances of that space. So the approach we have taken is, yes, we have existing assets that can do some of these things. And we are investing in those assets to do other things like lithium recovery, for example. But we are also looking at who else is out there who is doing something good. Because Lego is a huge company. It's a big company. Yeah, for sure. We are very entrepreneurial, but we are still very large. There's a lot of exciting startups in this space who are also doing good work. And then there are automakers. There are other people in this ecosystem. So Can we have collaboration and partnerships which allow us to accelerate what we want to do? And so that's been the focus. So in the last two, three years, we've been focusing on partnerships, investments to curate literally a platform. And so we ended up investing in a few startups. I'm on the board of one and we have made other partnerships. So for us now looking forward, it's all about collaboration and partnerships. So it will include our assets and do what I just described, but we also want to work with partners and collaborators in the space. And how much is your of your responsibility is getting down to essentially a raw material that the processing facility can buy at cost parity with virgin metal, virgin ore, whatever, and how much of it is actually working with them on what the right blends are of, you know, sort of virgin ore and and recycled material coming out of your processing? It kind of goes hand in hand, right? So if you take only a commercial view and just say, look, I'm just going to find a whole bunch of recycled material and just give it to you, or just a lot of copper or nickel or cobalt, lithium, whatever, I just give it to you. That's one way to do it. That's a setup where, let's say, the marketing or trading teams are very hands-off from the assets and the assets just do their own thing. You can do it, but I think it's it's going to be inefficient. In our world, we are a matrix organization. There's basically, if you, if you come to Glencore, you look at our business cards, there's no titles. <laughs> so. It, uh, we get very technical. So me, my team, other colleagues, we actually get very technical. We get into the metallurgy of these materials. We get into the chemistry. We look at flow sheets of our smelters or hydromet plants. And you really have to find the fit between the processing and the feed because that's where you can either make or lose a lot of money. So that's one. Second is our environmental responsibility. So we have to be very careful on what can get processed where at the highest environmental standards possible? So again, you know, you can't just say, oh, here's some scrap or some batteries or something. I'm getting a good price for it, so let me just buy it. Can't do that. You had to look at, do I need a permit for it? Where I want to send it? Is it permitted to process it? So you really need to understand regs as well as the actual technical capability of processing. So you have to really wear these both hats for this to work. So I'm, I'm very proud that our teams can do that. So we work very, very closely with the assets. We work very closely with the supply side. And then, of course, on the other end, which is the recycled metal that comes out, that's another interesting space. So we're looking at 
some interesting creative ideas. Something we piloted is recently is a recycled metal credit. I don't believe anyone else has done it so far. So we piloted it. And it's basically a concept like renewable energy certificates, but it's a similar concept, but for recycled metal. It exists in plastics for sure, right? Like the, the recycled plastics credit. In recycled plastics, yes. But for metals, we are trying it and exploring, you know, is this something people want? Will it have credibility? Because, you know, I know like offsets get a bad name these days and we don't want to, this to be, be lumped with, the, with offsets uh, as well. So we're trying a lot of these things. So basically the role actually cuts across all of these three pillars. So that's what makes life interesting and keeps me motivated and passionate about doing this. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. You mentioned you and your team like to dive into the technicalities of it. We're not going to dive deep into the technicalities, but let's at least dive into a little bit of the surface-level technicalities of some of these metals that you work in. So copper, let's you know start there. It's incredibly abundant. It looks like you all extract and process copper ore in South America, Democratic Republic of Congo, Australia, you do recycling in North America. What generally today does the copper production look like and how does recycling fit into that? Yeah, copper is a very interesting, you know, sometimes it's very cheeky, but these numbers put things in perspective, the challenge, right? So I read, read this on one of the blogs and so I, I haven't done the numbers myself, but I believe they're true. So somebody took all the USGS data on copper production. And, you know, copper is a metal we have known since the Bronze Age, whatnot, right? So we've been producing copper since centuries. So if you add up all the production, so it seems until today, we have produced 700 million tons of copper. And between today and 2050, according to IPCC, IEA, like take any, any other projection. So between today and 2050, we need to produce 1,000 million tons of copper. Some order of magnitude. Those numbers are probably wrong, but that's the order yeah. of magnitude. So you probably you have to produce a little more than what you have produced so far. So since minus infinity to today, whatever you have produced in the next twenty eight years, you have to produce more than that. So how are you going to? And that's it? primarily driven by the need for electric wiring, right? Is like the primary use case. Yeah, electric wiring, solar panels, offshore wind, EVs have more yeah. copper in them. All of that. Batteries have copper yeah. foils. People don't talk about it. So. It's a big challenge. So what happens is today, the refined market, the refined consumption market is just shy of 30 million tons, 29 and change, of which about 6 million tons comes from recycled sources. Six, seven, eight goes up and down, right? And one of the challenges is how can you take it even higher? Because you'll need more and more copper. So I don't think anybody who is in the primary mining of copper has any reason to panic. What does primary mining of copper look like today? So primary mining is either underground or open pit mines. You have sulfide or oxide deposits. 
they get treated a little differently. But basically, you'll have a mine, you'll take out the ore, you concentrate it. It literally means you concentrate the grade of copper. So you go from half a percent per ton or 1% to 30%. You concentrate it. You have a, a mine, you have these big, giant, like monster trucks that are big uh, dump trucks, essentially. You're dropping these ore in it. You're taking it to some processing facility. Yeah, so you take it to what's called a concentrator. The job of a concentrator is try and, and pull out as much rock and leave as much copper as possible. Concentrates tend to be 25-30% roughly. Then that goes to a few different processes, but the most common, you'll take it to a smelter. And then the smelter will get you to almost 98-99% copper. And the concentration piece is, that's where the sulfuric acid is coming in heavily? Is that, it, is that it correct? It comes in, in, if you have oxide ore, you will leach it with sulfuric acid and extract the copper. Okay. If you have sulfide ore, which has the sulfur molecule, that's what goes to a smelter and ends up producing the sulfuric acid, which you bring back in the oxide, right? So it's a big, nice cradle-to-grave story there. And then these smelters produce 99-ish percent copper. We call them anodes. Then they go into a refinery, which is a hydromet process. And that's where you get 99.999% pure copper, gold, silver. You'll have all of these things from refineries. But that's a massive slab of copper. And from there, it has its own journey. It- and are these supply chains relatively local? Or is this stuff getting shipped around the world for this to happen, typically? Some of it is local. Some of it gets shipped around the world. I mean, we operate the only copper smelter in Canada now. And we operate the only copper refinery that can also do precious metals and platinum group metals in all of North America. And I think this is like, if you see, if you think about it historically, right, the mines were where the mines are, that's natural geology. And in way back when, the smelters were built close to the mines, right? But now you also have this concept of a custom smelter. And a custom smelter is a smelter that's not tied to a mine. It can be, you know, wherever it's freight economic to put it. And then you just bring all kinds of copper uh, feeds and then you produce copper. So our smelter in Canada is a custom smelter. It used to be tied to a mine. The mine shut down in 1976. And so that's amazing because, you know, the guys reinvented themselves from being a captive smelter to one of the biggest recycling smelters in the world and treating all kinds of constant and still going. We will have the 100th year anniversary of that smelter in, in 2027. So that's the primary process story for copper. And then as recycling starts to happen and blend into this, what does that look like? So recycling has its own story, right? So recycling is you and I use products. We discard them. Somebody collects them. Not everything gets collected. So let's take end-of-life electronics as a good example. Only about 18% gets collected in the world. The rest is lost or goes to landfill, which is sad. But once it's collected in a proper channel, it goes through a recycler that sits upstream of us. They will dismantle it. And the reason they're dismantling it is they're trying to create like piles of materials, plastics, ferrous metals like steel, and non-ferrous. The non-ferrous has is things like your circuit board chips, wires, ICs, all of that good stuff. This is everything from my laptop to my phone to my refrigerator when I move out of my house or whatever. Yeah, your toaster, your AirPods, yeah. your whatever, like anything that has any kind of electronics. So yeah. then that third pile, non-ferrous, is what comes to us. And when it comes to us, we do a few things. We have the responsibility to put a value on it. So if I gave you just a truckload of phones, which by the way, we have received a truckload of phones, how do you know how much copper is in it? You don't. 
So we go through a very extensive process of trying and establishing a representative sample. And that's a service we provide to the industry. So we have sampling plants whose job is to just take the material and come up with a representative sample so that we can tell our suppliers how much copper or gold or silver or whatever is in it. I'll give you another sidebar example. We also run for one of the world's largest semiconductor companies. We manage all of their manufacturing scrap, which is 30, 40, 50 sites across the world. So there we are providing a IP protection service. So we safely destruct any chips coming off the line so it can't be counterfeited. And then we bring it all back to America and we recycle it to give them value for it. So this is sort of, these are various, so post-consumer, post-manufacturing, slightly different. But once it comes into our supply chain, we have done the sampling, then we basically blend it. So, you know, a smelter is a very complex, you're running a very complex chemical reaction and you just have to balance it. So you will come up with a blend in real time of the primary feed and this recycled feed, which keeps the smelter balanced in all kinds of different KPIs. But once it goes in, then what comes out is your copper. By the way, I'm hearing a good use case for a software-focused startup in your space, which is helping with those blends and balances. Yeah, right? there's, there's actually a lot of companies that are already trying to innovate in the space. Now you can run digital twins of these plants. So once it enters that stream, then you know it goes through what I explained earlier. You'll make a copper anode, copper cathode, and it goes forward. Another hot topic these days seem to be batteries or EV batteries. It's slightly different. Let's do that. Let's do the virgin metals portion of either cobalt or nickel you choose. And let's go through the flow on that too. Yeah. So the virgin metal part is very similar to how I explained copper. Okay. Right. So it will go to usually, uh, see, cobalt is usually a byproduct. Cobalt is usually a byproduct of copper. Very few cobalt deposits exist on their own. Usually cobalt coexists with copper or nickel. Okay. And at least in our system, we recover the cobalt through our nickel refineries and nickel smelters. Cobalt is actually relatively small quantities we're talking about relative to some of these other metals like copper and nickel, right? In current batteries, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But the thing with copper, now we're getting very technical. So I had a discussion with one of the much smarter guys at a national lab in the US, and he was explaining the significance of cobalt to me. And in his non-technical way of explaining to me was cobalt is what holds everything together. So you always need a safe amount of cobalt to try it. Now, of course, you have cobalt-free batteries like LFP, which is fine. But on the NMC side, its use has come down, but it's still needed. NMC meaning nickel, manganese, cobalt. Nickel, manganese, cobalt, right? The primary pathway to that, those metals, is very similar to copper. So I don't want to repeat it. And in years past, what we were able to do is take lithium-ion batteries through the same pathway because they have the same nickel and cobalt. And we were able to recover, like I explained for copper, similar to nickel and cobalt, we were able to precipitate and recover at the same time nickel and cobalt from primary and nickel and cobalt from secondary. Now, what changed? What changed is, I would say, around, let's say, three, four, five years ago, a few things happened. So now you have this concept of a gigafactory in this space. Why is it relevant? Because gigafactories are a massive concentrated source of manufacturing scrap which was previously not that big of a thing. Then the second thing is the battery itself has changed. So lithium-ion battery recycling is not a new thing. Your laptop and phone batteries have always been recycled since 20 years ago. But recycling an EV battery is not the same as recycling your phone battery. It's a massively huge piece of equipment. It's It has a state of charge that's much bigger. You have safety issues. Like It's a whole different ballgame. So that is second. And third is lithium. 
So lithium prices were, let's say, non-exciting for a long period of time. And then about two or so years ago, lithium skyrocketed. Well, and the virgin lithium extraction actually process is quite different than these other metals we've talked about, correct? It is different. You're right. So all of these factors have to be now considered going forward. And we have looked at it as well. So you need to recover value for lithium and provide it. You need to be able to handle these large format batteries. And there is this new source of manufacturing scrap, which is gigafactories in America, in Europe, which you want to be able to provide for. So in that sense, we've made some changes and we've made some moves. So we've invested in technology. We've also invested in other companies that have access, you know, pathway to lithium extraction. We have looked at what is the best way to provide this service to gigafactories of taking that scrap that they're producing and recycling it. These OEMs and gigafactories increasingly want to talk about circularity. So how can you provide traceability of what happens to that material? How can you return the metal back? These are new business models being formed. How much have you seen the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits of domestication of supply chain of these metals pushing these conversations forward? Oh, it's been a huge push. I actually just came back from D.C. where the Department of Energy was hosting this deploy conference to basically talk about these topics. I think IRA has done a great job for recycling, and I don't know if people realize it because I think the rest of the IRA is well understood. Like, okay, credits for buying EVs, support for you know camp plants, big camp, all of those things. But what they have also done is they have basically said, if you can produce metal from recycling, then they are viewing that as a domestic source of critical metal production, which is an amazing way of redefining recycling. So these metals could be originally mined, produced in China, created in a Chinese battery, and then ultimately sold in the U.S., recycled on shore, and now it's considered a U.S. metal. Now it's considered a U.S. metal, yes. And then you get production tax credit for it, you get investment tax credit for it, and the DOE has invested a lot of dollars in the recycling space. So that's actually hugely positive for the industry. And same in Europe. If you look at Europe, the equivalent of this is going on in Europe and it's hugely supportive for the recycling industry. So I think Inflection Reduction Act, the EU CRM, innovation grants, and they have been game changers in this space. And we've just started. There's a lot more to come. And I think it'll be a good time for this industry. How would you define what would be meaningful in terms of percentages of battery metals that are generated specifically for EVs. Sorry to go into that very specific topic, but it's so top of mind for a lot of people. Percentages of battery metals in an EV process that are coming from recycled sources, like what is meaningful to achieve in a near-term time horizon? I think just given the massive ladder that we have to climb in terms of how many EVs we want to put on the roads, the goal is to get as many EVs out there as possible. And to do that, you'll find the most practical, fastest, scalable way to do that. So I don't want to put my very myopic recycling hat on and give a very crazy target, which slows down that because that's actually is counterproductive. My expectation is, look, I think if you look at an example from another world, lead acid batteries, through whatever journey they took, today, if you buy a lead acid battery, about 99% of the lead in there is recycled, coming from recycling. Oh, wow. Or some, some crazy high number like that. Maybe 98, wow. I, don't, like, I don't know exact, but it's that. Sure, well, yeah, whatever. Right? Significant. Significant. Now, I think that's an aspirational goal, but it took the lead acid industry a huge amount of time to get to where it is today. It will take a similar amount of time probably for EV batteries. So it's very hard to put a date on this 
i would say this is something that happens substantially everything being recycled is a matter of 100 million evs running on roads and being sold every year that's probably a post 2050ish scenario but because there's just not enough supply of batteries to be recycled until that critical mass is there yeah so i think if you look at it recycling is not a standalone business to recycle something you must first produce it right the other thing i said and people would say well you are a recycling guy why are you saying this if an ev can run for 15 years instead of 10 my view is it should run for 15 years yeah because why do you want to artificially shorten a product's life like every product we are using has an impact on the earth and so the longer you can use a product it's better for all of us so between all of that i think in the next in this decade to early next what you can recycle is mostly manufacturing scrap the holy grail of end of life ev batteries and recycling and evs themselves it's probably a matter of the next decade so first of all you have that supply side problem so to have enough recycled metal you must have enough feed stock and also think about it like if you are running a gigafactory your goal is not to produce massive amounts of scrap <laughs> your goal is to run an efficient factory and produce the minimum logical amount of scrap because anything any production process has some scrap right so keeping all those pragmatic things in mind i think it will take a number of years decades longer before you get to very high double digit rates of recycled metal so it's hard for me to give a date and and a number what i do think ordinality wise i believe you will get on get there on cobalt first followed by nickel followed by lithium that's sort of the order i would think sometimes people don't think of copper when they think about ev batteries or evs copper is a huge amount of is a very important metal in in an electric battery i like to joke with people like you can produce energy many different ways you can store energy many different ways but the little engineer and science guy in me knows you know you can only conduct electricity best is gold next silver which we are not going to use is copper so you know we need copper and so i think if you look at recycled copper use in these things yeah again like already almost 20 30% of the copper market is recycled so you will have good rates there but i think that what was your order again say say your order again a second time just i would say cobalt nickel lithium and where does copper factor into that that's already happening now i guess it's yeah it's already happening now people just don't measure it and i think cobalt copper should be taken more seriously than it is today by the ev industry For you in your role, I mean, we talk a lot about EVs and whatnot on this podcast, but if you took a step back and weren't thinking about it just from the perspective of, you know, an EV battery market, where are you spending most of your time broadly? Like what drives the recycling business of Glencore today and what do you expect will drive it 10 years from now? It comes down to what we can recycle and what problems can we solve for the industry. and what we can recycle the big things we can recycle are resource streams i like to think of them as resource streams we have been doing a lot of as i said end of life electronics semiconductors and those sorts of things they are a huge part of our business they'll continue to be a huge part of our business but i don't think they will see the exponential growth that the other part which also we are very good at uh, have been doing for 20 years or so but now is changing like we discussed is lithium ion batteries so i think you know we will see the growth in the on the electronic space we're spending a lot of time talking to governments and civil society and other players on how can you increase the collection rate from 18% to maybe 30% 40% right so there's a lot of effort that we can do there and i think that's not a space we play in 
but we have a responsibility to educate the policymakers and others. So we do that and then make sure we have the metallurgical capacity to match when that happens, right? So we are spending some time there. When it comes to the battery space on lithium-ion batteries, that requires investment. So Glencoe is already making investments, partnerships. We have already announced a number of partnerships. And it's uh, reimagining some of this business. So there's a lot of talk about circularity and what circular business models look like. And we are ready, capable, and already driving some of that dialogue. So we spend a lot of time with OEMs, with gigafactories, with policymakers, with task forces of various countries who are asking us for inputs. So it's just curating that circular ecosystem, if you may, right? And for practical reasons, you know, Europe and North America is their focus simply because there's a lot of OEM manufacturing gigafactories in these two regions. We have assets in these regions and these conversations are catching on faster, let's say, than at the moment in Asia. But we are working on on those markets too. So we spend a lot of time in, in this part of the space. So I'm hearing you say today, the core recycling business is driven by manufacturing scrap, essentially reusing metals from those byproducts but all the attention and time that we spend talking about EV battery recycling and, you know, I guess you said, don't call it e-waste, you know, and all that is apt because that is likely to be the growth driver of your business in the decades to come. I think so. I think you'll see growth on the end-of-life electronics space. There's a huge question mark on solar panels. We didn't talk about it and, and don't have to, but there's 20 million tons or some crazy number like that of solar panels that will come offline, upgrading to the new PV sort of cells. What happens to all that? So we are doing some R&D there. It's a portfolio approach. The electronic side of the business, I think, will grow, but won't see exponential sort of growth. Lithium-ion battery is huge. Then there are new things like solar panels. I'll quickly mention one other thing, which is we shred automobiles. We shred 20 million cars a year in the United States. That is a lot of metal, all kinds of metal. And we are closely watching that space and seeing how can that space be more efficient there is some new ways to recover copper from there that was previously going to landfill, for example. So we are plugged into that conversation and, and helping recover more copper from there. So it's, it's a matter of not just saying, hey, you know, we'll only do EV battery recycling because it sounds really, really sexy. It's really a portfolio of these five or 10 markets, if you may. Some will have a slower, longer growth profile. Others probably will see an exponential growth. And you want to have a approach where you can address all of them and have different strategies for each. That's a more diversified business. That's how we look at our business. And so we end up spending time in all of these verticals. And then I think the last topic I have for you, you know, we talked about how Glencore is a new company. It's got a new forward focus, but there have been these challenges in the past. How do you see labor practices broadly evolving in the natural resources space, particularly in you know, many countries that themselves don't necessarily have high social standards, don't necessarily have the amount of regulation that you might have in the United States, for example. How is the space evolving to recognize its place in the world as a, you know, responsible steward of the planet and of humanity as these needs, these incredible crushing needs for these resources that you are finding continue to grow upon us? No, I think it's a very important, timely question. A lot of people have to ask these questions to themselves. We certainly are very serious about it. Because if you think about it, it's very clear that we do need these metals to deliver on the energy transition. That's something that nobody debates anymore. You definitely need copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium. You need these metals. If there was a parallel universe in which you didn't need these metals and still achieve 
avoid climate change and one and a half degrees or higher rise of temperatures, then we would know it by now. But for now, what we know and all our scientists know and researchers know is this. So it's a given that you need more metal production. Then you also know that the big ore deposits that were all in easy to reach places in, let's say, Western market, they're all already tapped into. So any new mines, new production is going to come from difficult jurisdictions or difficult geology or there's something difficult about them. Otherwise, we would already have been probably mining them, right? So these are important questions. So I think the approach there is, if you think about it, I'll bring a different angle into this. So somebody recently asked me, you know, why is battery passport that important? This whole tracing, you know, I'm sure you know about battery passports. Like, No, no, explain it for those of us who don't know, real quick. So battery passports are a concept typically run on blockchain. The idea is EV batteries have a lot of these nuances about, you know, what kind of metal was used, how it was produced, what kind of ESG standards, traceability. So battery passport is, is sort of this concept where, you know, you may have this independently verifiable blockchain where all parts of the value chain put their information so that whoever needs to verify whether it's to give you IRA subsidies or for an OEM to check traceability of where the metals came from or for you as the car owner to know the health of your battery, you can just look into this digital passport and it has all the information. And it actually ties back to your question. So if you look at where we are now in the hunt for these metals, if you take the example of two of these metals, cobalt, usually present in the DRC, nickel, you know, present across the world, but there's been a lot of recent push in Indonesia. Both countries have historically different challenges on extraction of these metals. In the DRC, there is an issue with artisanal mining. People have issues with that. So I think where things like digital passports help is if you look at our operations, we run a very clean operation. Operating standards are very high. We're proud about it. We routinely bring customers and OEMs to come and take a look. There's audits that happen. So some ways we are addressing that in that, let's say, uh, I'll give you one use of technology there. So we've recently, this public information, we've recently come out and said, we will provide a very high resolution satellite imagery of our operations on a very frequent basis. So you can basically go on our website and see what's happening. And you can look at it and say, okay, good. Like that cobalt, cobalt copper operation in the DRC clearly is not affected by artisanal mining. And I'm not really commenting on the ethicality of artisanal mining. It's a very complex topic, right? It's being handled in its forum. What is artisanal mining? Basically, use of child labor to extract okay. uh, cobalt. Got it. Right? Okay. So we are using technology and traceability and whatnot to explain that, okay, there is this asset. It is in the DRC simply because 80% of the world's cobalt is found in the DRC. And you can look at the standards at which we run our operations. And now we're providing the satellite feeds and it's on our website and people can look at it. So there's just one example of how you have to look at it. A flip side to that, let's say, again, in, in our nickel Indonesia, there's a, a huge influx of expected influx of nickel from Indonesia. But Indonesia does have some environmental historical challenges with nickel mining. So, again, how are you going to... And that it's a contributor to deforestation, I think, would be one of them, right? Yeah. Right. Also, the impurity levels in the oceans, the fisheries and whatnot. So my point is, in any of these cases, you will have operations that are world-class, that will adhere to not just some external standards, but they'll have their own internal standards that are really world-class, and Glencore has its own, but not to make a point only about Glencore. So in, in any of these types of jurisdictions, you going forward, you will have to have ways that people can 
convince themselves and not just a matter of convincing, you can verify that the operations that I am sourcing my metal from are operating at a high ethical social governance standards to the standards that I like, right? And I will hence source from there. And there may be other operations that may not meet those standards. It's a very complex topic. It gets into the now push for third-party governance standards, right? Standards are fine. The question is you can't have a thousand different standards because, you know, how do you then qualify for each sort of standard? You do need standards. I mean, it seems like at some point, in the short term, it may be hard to compete with local groups or other companies or whatnot who don't have these standards and therefore may be able to, in the short term, do things with less cost. You know, presumably an organization like Glencore that has the resources to be able to do all of this public sort of transparency work around this can ultimately win on public opinion sort of demanding of this and policy demanding of this amount of transparency. Is that... You're right. And like from our perspective, we take this duty very seriously. We go to these places to extract the metal. We are there. We are we're trying to leave a very small footprint, work with the communities while we are there. And then when you're done mining, you want to try and restore it as best as possible. That's a license to operate. It's not even a question of how well you do it or not. If you don't do it well, you can't really operate. So we're very proud to be very good at those things. And then I think if you look at IRA, if you look at legislations like foreign entity of concern, if you look at what Europe is doing, so there is a legislative push that does try to achieve some of this by defining what is the FDA compliant country where these things are done at good standards. So you have that. But also I think OEMs, especially OEMs in the energy transition space, have their own standards. They have their own audits. They will go through and look at these operations. Like many of our operations are audited by these OEMs. And they do then satisfy themselves and say, yeah, this is a world-class operation. And I would like to source from here. And then I won't name them, but many of our sites are mentioned in ESG reports of many of the OEMs because they have to show what you audited. So this whole process of how you verify that a particular site or a particular supplier is operating at a standard that I find acceptable. I think this process will evolve over time, but there has to be this process because you're right, there are many different ways of doing these things. We like to think that we are operating at extremely high standards and we abide by those standards and we have our own standards. We have safe work standards, we have environmental standards, sustainable development standards, beyond just the commercial aspect of all of this. So I think it will bifurcate in that way. And at the end of the day, yes, I think there will be a market for metal that's sustainably produced, responsibly produced, and goes to energy transition. And yeah, there may certainly be some other form of production, which is not that responsible. But I think increasingly that sort of metal may not find its way into the supply chain for these responsible companies and OEMs playing a role in the energy transition. Well, I appreciate you addressing those topics with us as well. They're just as important, obviously, as the technical topics and the market topics, if not more so. And, you know, it's as we set up at the beginning, it's an industry in transition. This, this industry maybe didn't pay as much attention to some of those topics 20, 30 years ago. And so, you know, bringing them to light today and acknowledging how the world has evolved to in- appreciate those uh, and, and basically demand and require them clearly an incredibly important part of this energy transition story that we're all working through. I think I just, I thought I'd leave you with Cody is, I do think that having have spent most of my now working career in a, in a natural resources company and having gone to these sites and mines and whatnot, 
if you go to one of these sites people who are working there and these are people who have been working at these sites for 30 40 years actually you will realize that you know what we call esg now or or some of these new taxonomy in the mining world if you are a good mining company especially a listed miner this was never a a question mark or an option or a box to tick this was a duty of care so this was a responsibility for the safety of your operators and your employees so in my mind any mining company not just lencore any responsible mining company especially a listed company i think this was always very serious and it was a license to operate having good community relationships having a good environmental footprint and doing things right so i actually think that natural resources companies should have a easy and natural way of being esg compliant because they always were now the standards are developing evolving you have to do a bit more you have to do more reporting and more data that you have to share externally yeah and but we are not having to like it's not like you get in the room and say oh my god what does esg mean and do we do it sort of thing uh, so i do think it, the industry perhaps get a bit of a bad rap like more for people who may not be from the industry but if you are from the industry you will realize like even 30 years ago people did the best they could to keep people safe to run things responsibly to produce things at the best and highest standards possible so at some point i do think the the industry doesn't get as much appreciation for that as as perhaps it should so i just just have to add that sure thanks for sharing that and kunal any uh any last thoughts or anything i didn't ask that we should have covered today no i think we had a very good wide ranging conversation we didn't go into a lot of this but i do think as you fast forward this story from an energy transition perspective i go back to it has to be a mix of responsible production and responsible consumption and i believe that gets into this theme of circularity and circular economy and when you get into that theme you're not it's a coordination challenge because it's not like you're coordinating within a company or across two companies you have to coordinate across five industries right to get a good circular economy going on and i think the key to doing that is it's all about partnerships and collaboration so we are big on big on that we don't claim to know everything we love to partner with people all the way from crazy ideas from a startup down to very mature companies with good technology and everything else in between so i think i think the theme going forward is one of circularity driven by collaboration well i appreciate that's a good theme to end on for sure and a call to action to many innovators out there who may be listening to this that are working on potential solutions um it sounds like in glencore you have a company that is looking for new ways of doing things and so uh, you know i appreciate you joining us and sharing more about your role canal and uh and also explaining a bit more about how the mining and natural resources space works thanks cory really appreciate the opportunity and great to be on the podcast thanks again for joining us on the my climate journey podcast At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks and see you next episode.